Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is one of the great tragic moments in all of the Bible. Up until this point, David has been the golden boy of the Scriptures, you might say. He's been the focal point since 1 Samuel 16. So, for 26 consecutive chapters, David has been the center of attention. And the David that we have seen there, though not in an absolute sense, but in a predominant sense, has been a delightful and admirable character. We have watched him through his period of conflict, going back to Goliath, and then with Saul, and then with Saul's house, and then with external enemies such as the Philistines and the Ammonites. And we've seen through all of this what was, to begin with, a fine and admirable character become more beautiful still. Let's just remind ourselves of some of the qualities of his character that, that we have been learning from and admiring and hoping to make a part of our own lives. Uh, he's the one who trusted in God, wasn't he? You remember the, the number of incidences with Saul when, when uh, David had the opportunity to put Saul to death, and yet he would not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. He would not use disobedience as a means of of advancing his own cause. He would rather leave it in the hands of God and trust Him. He was one who depended upon God. And therefore we saw repeatedly at important junctures in David's life, he would inquire of the Lord before he would move forward. That is, he would pray and seek divine counsel, not, not uh, trusting in his own wisdom, and not a man of, of a self-sufficient means, not to claiming to be able to advance and to move forward on his own, in his own strength, in his own wisdom, and in his own power, but rather uh, depending upon God and seeking his wisdom. He's a man who loved his enemies. We saw that as he composed a song at the, on the occasion of the death of Saul and uh, Jonathan but also lamented the death of Abner, his rival, and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, another of his rival, mourning and grieving over the, the loss of, of those who were his enemies, and modeling for us what it meant uh, to love uh, those who are our opponents. Uh, he was a humble man. We saw that in 2 Samuel 7, when God pronounced all of the blessings that would come upon uh, saw David's house, what did he say? Who am I? And what is my house that I should be blessed like this? Tremendous uh, humility for a man who had done all that David had done. And zeal for God. We saw this in bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And in his desire to build the temple of God, there was consistently in David's life a zeal for the glory of God, whether it leads him in battle against Goliath or in this endeavor to build God a, a, a house that was appropriate for his worship. We found that he was a grateful man, uh, finding, trying to find ways to express thanksgiving to God for all that God had done for him. And then also for, for Hanan, uh, when uh, he had died, wanting to do something for his son in chapter 10. And a tender-hearted concern even being shown for Mephibosheth, in chapter 9, the crippled son of Saul. 
So in all of these things, here's a man who trusted God, depended upon God, loved his enemies, humble, great zeal for God, grateful, tender-hearted, and an accomplished musician, poet, athlete, warrior, and king. All this wrapped up in one package. A really, a truly, a remarkable man. It's no wonder that much of what we read about the Messiah is patterned after what we see in David. David is a, is a forerunner, a type of the Messiah who, would, who, who was to come. And yet, we can find as well the seeds of David's own destruction already having been sown. David has been the beneficiary of a string of victories. And so he now is a man of unmatched and unrivaled wealth and power and fame. And in that context, it's going to be very difficult for David to fight off a sense of his own self-sufficiency, his own greatness. But rather, he's going to be tempted to think that it's by his strength and by his power and to come to sense that he had arrived, that he, he, had, he had done all these things and that he now had uh, arrived in some kind of an absolute sense and uh, that uh, he could relax. Uh, he had proven himself and to become self-reliant in his virtually invulnerable position that he is now in as the great king who has subdued all of his enemies. And then there is also, in David's life present, presently, a, a, what, I, what I can't really find the right word to describe, but there is a, a situation of peerlessness. Peerlessness. He has no peers. He's the king. And as such, he will be tempted to see himself as unique and above the law and a man of special needs. And he's begun already to act the part of the oriental despot. And the primary example of that is his many wives, which he has gathered around him over the years. And it is, in fact, you know, we were talking the other day with, uh, I was talking the other day with some of the young people. What about all the David's wives? All David's wives were never approved. It was always wrong. And it goes unaddressed for chapters and chapters. And it seems as though God is uh, winking at this. And nothing is said about it. But what we're going to see in both David's life and in his son Solomon's life is that this, it is at this point, the point of the seventh commandment, and the sanctity of marriage, and God's design of one man and one woman, that they be united for life together in marriage, it will be at this point that the devil exploits David's weakness and his disobedience. And it will be his undoing, it will be the destruction of David and of David's kingdom and of his son Solomon right across the pages of the history of Israel on into the future. David, you see, is in this position of peerlessness. Who's going to account, uh, who's going to challenge David? To whom is David accountable? To whom does David answer? He is uh, the unchallenged king at this point. He has no peers. And that's a very, very dangerous position to be in. 
And I, as I look back over the last several years, five, ten years, and look at uh, the ministers who have fallen in, into sin, in a number of cases, though not absolutely in every case, but in a number of cases, it has been a, very much the same problem. They have fallen into sin, whether it's been in the area of financial sin or particularly in the same area that David has his problems, mainly because they're peerless. Because they have built up great ministries and they have these adoring crowds that are, that are bowing down before them virtually. And they build these big empires of churches and money and people. And uh, they, became, they become untouchable. Church boards dare not to upset them lest they lose them and be saddled with with uh, all those people and all those debts and all that, the, all of the, uh, the unknown that comes with that if they were to lose their leader. And they become untouchable and they get their way in everything and nobody scrutinizes them anymore. And they don't answer to anybody anymore. And they demand their way and they get their way. And so to be in a situation of peerlessness is a very, very dangerous thing. And that's where we find David. His head swells as the head's of others shrink. Something changed here, didn't it? <laughs> His head is swelling as the, as the heads of others begin to shrink. And we all have this tendency to say, well, I would never do that. Not me. But David, because he is no longer accountable and because he is in a position where he is tempted to to, to become convinced of his own self-sufficiency and become reliant upon himself is in a very tenuous, vulnerable position. And it's always in that context Then we begin to read in chapter 11, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servant with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem. The author is pointing something out here for us. Very deliberately pointing something out. This is the time of year when kings go to war. It's between the winter wet season and in the summer planting season. And between that time, sometime in the spring, the kings go out to, go to lead their troops into battle. And at that time, when David ought to be leading his troops, David stays behind in Jerusalem. He sends Joab. He sends all Israel. You see, the text is making that point. David didn't go. David sent Joab, his servants, uh, and his servants with him, and all Israel. That is, all of the military forces of Israel. They've all gone out to battle. All of his commanding generals, all of his servants, they're all going out into battle. And they win a great victory. But, it says at the end of the verse... David stayed at Jerusalem. How often is it the case that we get in trouble because we're somewhere that we shouldn't be? Just to give you a trivial example, uh, the other day, I, know, I don't hardly ever use my children as illustrations, but I'm going to use one now. Sally was standing alongside of a swimming pool, and a dog came up behind her and head-butted her into the pool. And she fell in and got all wet. And that was all funny and hilarious and all that. And, uh, but the problem was, she was not supposed to be by the pool in the first place. She's not to be anywhere near the pool. 
And so it's not her fault, right, that a dog bumped her into the pool. That dog did that, and she, she didn't ask that to be done, but it happened. But the problem is, she was where she wasn't supposed to be. How many times does that happen? How many times do we get into trouble because we're someplace where we weren't supposed to be? If we had been where we were supposed to be, we wouldn't have gotten into trouble. It's one thing to say that's a bad dog. It's another thing to say, what about the girl who was where she wasn't supposed to be at that moment and so got in trouble that she would not have gotten in otherwise? And the implication here is, is exactly that. David is neglecting his duty. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be in battle off with the rest of the troops. And so verse 2 when evening came, David arose from his bed, he apparently took an afternoon siesta, and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And so David is taking this uh, late siesta, as it were. He then just is, is walking around on the roof. Now, picture the situation. How do you walk around on a roof? Back and forth. Back and forth, back and forth. I mean, this is this is not uh, you know this is not the roof of the Pentagon. He, he's not running laps. He's walking around the roof of a fairly small mid-eastern uh, building, even if it is the palace. Back and forth, aimlessly walking, uh, nothing to do, meandering about, unoccupied, idle. In other words, nowhere to go, and it's this, this very. The aimlessness of his life at this point, the idleness of it, that is the bit the devil's playground. How many times are we in trouble because we're not supposed, we're not where we're supposed to be and we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing? You see, if you had been where you said you were going to be, if you had been where you were supposed to be rather than somewhere else, if you'd been at the library, if you'd been at school, if you'd been at work, if you'd been at practice, if you'd been home. Instead, he's up on the roof. The king's roof is the highest roof in the city where he can look down over his dominions. And he's looking down, and lo and behold, he sees something that he didn't need to see. So number one in David's life, the problem begins with idleness. His sin begins with having too much time, with neglect of duty, with not bearing, being where he should be, not doing what he should do. And so wandering aimlessly, looking for something to do is the context within which David gets in trouble. He's shirking his duty. And that will be the case uh, for, for us as well. Repeatedly in our lives, if we just would do the things that we're supposed to do and be where we're supposed to be, then we will not give sin the number of occasions that it would otherwise have to tempt us into disobedience. The next thing that I want us to see as we go on in verse 2 is that sin is both pleasurable and progressive. Back to verse 2 again. David is walking around the roof of his uh, palace and from the roof he sees a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Beautiful in form is what it uh, li literally says. She is, in other words, pleasurable to look at. And there's a sense in which there are things, whether it's a beautiful scenery or a beautiful individual, that there is pleasure that comes through the eye. There is a pleasure at looking at somebody. And so here, David's 
Then David looks, and then the glance becomes a, gla a gaze, and then the gaze becomes a stare. It's like Luther said that you, you can keep the birds from you can't keep the birds from flying overhead, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. All right? It's not his fault, you might say, that he happened to see someone there, but what he does with it then is his fault. And he, can, he, can, he can't stop the bird from flying over here, but he can sure keep it from building a nest. But that's not what he does. He sees, he then ponders. He takes in the view. He enjoys the view. This is the allurement of pornography. There's pleasure in seeing. There's pleasure in, in certain visual scenes. And particularly for men, the, the, the physical form of the woman is uh, a sight from which they derive pleasure. And so he's drinking this this view in. Uh, pornography works the same way. It's pleasurable and progressive. The more you see, the more you want to see. The further it goes, the more perverse and more corrupt and more degrading it becomes. Because there's pleasurable in what there's pleasure in sin, beginning with what you see, and then feasting on what you see, and then finally being consumed and enslaved by what you see. And so David drinks it all in and inflames his lust. In verse 3 then, so David sent and inquired about the woman. Probably feigning innocence initially. Just want to know who that is. Just uh, interested uh, in who that might be out there. And uh, claiming to do so innocently. Nothing wrong with knowing who lives over at uh, you know, the 101 East... Uh, Jerusalem Street. Uh, just want to know who, who, who's in that house over there. To find, find out who that is for me. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now when David asks, he's taken another step in the direction of sin. And you might even say, he has reached, at this point, the point of no return. Job says in Job 31.1 that he made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Philippians 4.8 says whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, and if there is any, any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. You know, you, there's, there's a sense in which the eyes have to be trained. You need to cut it off with the, with the visual. Don't let it progress any further than that. You know, I found when I was an undergraduate at USC, uh, USC being a warm climate campus, and uh, when spring came, uh, that manifesting itself in fashion in ways that were difficult for teenage boys and uh, boys in their young, their early 20s, if you follow my drift. And I found that there was training that one had to do with one's eyes. One had to train oneself not to look. There's a look and then there's a look. There's a way to look at an individual and then there's another way to look at an individual. There's, a, there's, there's meeting of eyes, and then there's eyes going up and down and checking out every corner and every dimension. There is a quick glance, and then there's the, the pondering and staring. 
And it's with the visual that it all starts. Job makes a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully. He trains his eyes. He stops himself. Jesus said that you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at a woman to what? To lust. Look in order not to commit adultery, but in order to lust. There's a look in order to lust. And that's what Jesus is attacking there. That's what he's addressing. There's a way to look so that one can enjoy visually what one is seeing without any intention whatsoever, perhaps, of going further than that, but just enjoying the sight, looking in order to lust. What should David do at this point? Rather than inquiring of uh, the identity of the woman over on the roof over there taking her bath, what he should do is he should run. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality, the Apostle Paul says there. And then he does a, uh, an amazing thing, I think. He sets up the situation like this. He sums up all of life and all of the sinful choices we have like this. He says, flee immorality for every other sin that a man commits is what? Outside of the body. You know, you often hear people say, well, it's just a, you know, why should we elevate adultery to such heights and, and say that it's unique uh, in its sinfulness or other areas of immorality, sexual immorality? Why do we elevate that? We elevate it because the Apostle Paul makes that kind of a distinction. Every other sin. You take all the sins of the world, every sin of thought, word, and deed that a person can commit, you take them all and he draws a line and he puts them all on this side. And he says, every other sin that a man commits is outside of the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. It stands over here all by itself. There is something uniquely destructive, something uniquely damaging, something uniquely degrading about this so that the Apostle Paul can divide all of sin in two groups and put all of them in this group except one and put it over here all by itself and say this is uniquely able to destroy. All of these others are somehow external to us. My body is like a tool that is doing work external to itself. But in this, it's internalized. The destruction is internal. The, de the, 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 the destructive power is so much greater, so much more pro profound that this is something from which you must flee, run, escape. Don't indulge this for a moment. Don't let your eyes set upon the object of your lust. Don't take it in for a moment. Flee from it. Because every other sin is external to the body, but the immoral man is sinning somehow against his own body in a way that you do not do with any other sin. Again, 2 Timothy 2.22, Flee youthful lusts, he says, and pursue righteousness. There's the, the negative. The negative is you flee from this. The positive is that at the same time, you pursue righteousness. Keep yourself pure. Keep yourself clean. Work at it. Do the things that are necessary. Train your eyes. Look, but don't look. Be Joseph-like in your attitude toward immorality. And do you remember the incident with Joseph and Potiphar's wife? He found himself trapped in a compromising situation uh, with, with a woman who was after him. And 
Joseph turned on his heels and fled in order to escape, in order to preserve himself pure and clean, in order to escape immorality. Is, is this a serious business? This is extraordinarily serious business. David goes on as the tragedy deepens. Now he knows this is, this is somebody else's wife. This is not even a single woman, bad as that would be. This is not somebody that he can make another of his wives so that he might compound the sin of polygamy that he's already guilty of and add her to his harem, as it were. This is the wife of another man, a man who is serving him in the military, who's out on the front where David should be, further compounding the sinfulness of this. But David now acts like a man possessed. He's overcome. And as Peter says in 2 Peter 2.11, by what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. This doesn't prick his conscience. He doesn't say, well, you know, if it had been a single woman, or it had been even if it had been somebody's wife that I don't know anything about, but this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, a man who was serving me in my military on the front, risking his life for the sake of my kingdom. I couldn't possibly, even if I could in any other circumstance, not, not, not show this kind of disloyalty to a man who was serving in my army. Couldn't do that. But instead, we read in verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. When David sends for Bathsheba, it's all over. Really, it was all over once he asked who she was. But then once he sends for her, of course, he is moving inexorably toward the sin. Now, why does he do it? Why do none of the ordinary cautions put brakes on David? I'd like to suggest two reasons. Number one, at this point, David sees only pleasure. His anticipation is building. He's been feasting, you see. He's been watching. And all he can see now is all of the fun and the pleasure and the romance and the excitement and all this. By what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. He's a fool. He's like an animal at this point. And then secondly, and a corollary to that, not only does he only see pleasure, but he blinds himself to the consequences. What are the consequences of David's actions that he fails to see? See, what he sees is what Hollywood presents. All he sees right now is, you know, Tinseltown, excitement, glitter, airbrushed uh, pleasure. That's all he can see at this point. What he doesn't see, he doesn't see a conception. And he doesn't see the deception that follows the conception. And he doesn't see the murder that follows the deception. And then he doesn't see the death of the child. And then he doesn't see his son's rape of his daughter. Then he doesn't see his other son's murdering of that son. Then he doesn't see the civil war that breaks out. What David doesn't see as th is that through this one single impulsive moment, through this one foolish moment, 
David will bring destruction down on his kingdom. It will never be the same. It's Camelot up to this point. Ever thus thereafter, it is bloodshed, fratricide, civil war. David himself will end up once again the way he began his life as a refugee fleeing, living out in the open air. Fleeing from his own son who is avenging, who is avenging the, the a sin, falling in the same area of the sin that David here commits. And as God will say through Nathan, what you did in private, I will do openly before the whole nation. You see, what the, the devil's trick is, just, 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 just give them a glimpse of the pleasure. Blind them to all the consequences that go with it. A married person commits adultery. Why? Because they don't, they don't see the emotional torment that they and their spouse will go through. They don't, they don't uh, see at that moment the, the destabilizing of their marriage, the divorce, the shattered children who, as victims of divorce, are statistically far more likely to be involved in suicide, drug abuse, promiscuity, antisocial behavior, Getting bad grades, and I'm not just up here, uh, you know, spinning things off out of the top of my head. All this has been statistically proven. They can track this. This it has a devastating impact. Why would anyone risk it? Why? For what reason? For what purpose? What could possibly be worth it to risk losing your wife, losing your children? destroying them in the process, and yet you'll find men doing, men and women both doing the most inane, foolish, ridiculous uh, things in all of the world and risking everything in the process for a few moments of pleasure. Sin is both pleasurable and progressive. It is pleasurable, and it's progressive. It gets deeper and deeper. How about the unmarried person? What it, why would they be involved in fornication? Because uh, they only see the pleasure. They don't see the consequences. What consequences? How about uh, uh, to be expecting outside of wedlock? How about disease? How about illegitimacy? How about the poverty that comes with illegitimacy? How about the lost opportunities? Or maybe, maybe you'll just escape all of that, quote-unquote escape, and get an abortion. And then you'll have the blood of your child on your hands and on your conscience for the rest of your life. And you'll live with that. Do you hope that for your 17 or 18-year-old uh, daughter, that she'll spend the rest of her days with that on her conscience? All that from one moment of pleasure. Indulging one moment of pleasure. The devil seducing you into thinking, well, it's no big deal. It's just, uh, you know, it's natural. Remember all the beautiful, wonderful uh, 
trite uh, little ditties that came out of the 1960s like that. Oh, it's just a natural thing. You know, it's just biological. It's, a, it's fun. It's a, you know, it's a, it's not, not, nothing wrong with it. As long as two people love each other. All these different things that people were, say, were saying. I mean, nationally. I mean, we're talking about what happens personally. What about nationally? How about the way this nation is being rocked from top to bottom because of illegitimacy? How about the barbarians that are on the streets, most of whom are the products of single-parent households who were born illegitimate, who don't have the influence of the fathers in their lives? And so we have these, these, uh, these wild packs of un, uh, un, uh, undisciplined youths who are, who are t tearing our cities apart. All that from a few moments' pleasure. Men lose their families. Children lose their fathers and their mothers. A nation loses its sense of civility and renders itself unsafe, an unsafe place in which to live. And it says here, when she came to him, he lay with her. And in verse 5, the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Let me plead with you. Don't be seduced. Don't be conned by the alluring images of the television and of the movies. Don't uh, mistake the consequences of a moment's pleasure. Don't think you're going to get away with it. And don't think that you're not vulnerable. This great man of God, the man after God's own heart, David, because perhaps he becomes convinced of his own invulnerability. Perhaps because he becomes convinced of his own self-sufficiency. And he becomes self-reliant. Because he's not answerable to anyone anymore. Because nobody's keeping him honest and keeping him in check and cross-examining him. He's not accountable anywhere. This great man of God, David, destroys his life and his family, and his kingdom for a few moments' pleasure. Let, let me plead with you. I was telling someone the other day that it's, a, it's a been really amazing. I've been an independent now for just about ten years. Nine and a half years. And you know what is a real source of pride? Good pride. <laughs> Not bad pride. Good pride is, uh, you know, of the, the numbers of, of all of the young couples that have come into the church that are, you know, basically my age and down. There are no perfect marriages. There's all kinds of struggles going on out there. But, you know, people have basically hung together. And we have been remarkably divorce-free as a congregation. And there's been a strong ethic of faithfulness of staying together, working together, of honoring the marriage vows, of fulfilling the marriage vows. 
Let me, let me plead with you. Do not be seduced like David into thinking that it's possible to violate those vows, break the seventh commandment, and for there not, be, not to be disastrous consequences for you, for your marriage, for your children, for your church, and for the whole collectivity of us, for the nation as well. Remain pure. Remain faithful. And the way to do it is to flee youthful lusts. Get rid of everything that brings the seductive point of view, the seductive image into your life. Monitor what you read. Monitor what you watch. Monitor the influences that you allow to come into your life. And walk in purity, allowing only whatever is pure and lovely and honorable and of good repute into your lives as we pray together. Oh Lord, we pray that we would never fall into the, the extreme error that David does here. And yet, O oh Lord, we remember your, your warning. Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And we acknowledge that we are all vulnerable. We pray for the grace of your Holy Spirit that we would not be fooled by the world that we would not be overcome by the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life, but that we would maintain moral purity until the day that you take us home. Oh Lord, keep us that way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.